Earlier we sang one of William Cowper's great hymns. There is a fountain. Precious words to that song. Let me just remind you of the first verse. It goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains sadly some unbelievers have called christianity a slaughterhouse religion put quotation marks around that you can find those quotes on the internet particularly coming from the old the emergent movements saw several quotes coming from that movement saying things like this. They called it a slaughterhouse religion, Christianity. The reason they did that is because of how often the Bible talks about blood, and particularly we see a lot of blood shed in the Old Testament. And as outsiders, they do have a point to a certain extent because The Old Testament sacrificial system, which, by the way, pointed to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and His perfect sacrifice, was truly a gory affair. You'll see a picture on the screen here of someone's representation of what they would do with with goats in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But during that thousand-plus years of the Old Covenant... There were more than one million animals sacrificed. So considering that approximately each bull could spill up to about eight liters of blood and each goat spilling approximately one liter of blood, the Old Covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. In fact, what I read, it was interesting that uh, there was so much blood, particularly spilled during the Passover, when the animals were slaughtered, they actually constructed a trough in the city of Jerusalem that would take the blood from the temple through Jerusalem and all the way down and disposed of it down in the Kidron Valley. It was truly a sacrificial plumbing system. And Some have asked, well, why was there this perpetual sea of blood? Well, for one main reason... God was trying to teach that sin demands the shedding of blood. Sin demands the shedding of blood. Now, by the way, this doesn't suggest that blood itself atones for your sin, but it does demonstrate that sin brings and demands death. So, the devout Israeli under the Old Covenant would come with an awareness, number one, that sin requires death. Second, that it was a sacrifice that required repentance. 
it wasn't just giving the sacrifice that was enough. They had to come with the right heart attitude. They had to come with repentance to God. And third, this devout Israeli under the Old Covenant would be pleading the mercy of God. And fourth, and some of them, hopefully coming with the right perspective of the Old Testament, would would believe that there was a great sin-bearer yet to come. Their Messiah that they were looking for was that great sin-bearer. However, as we've seen in Hebrews chapter 9, it tells us the Old Covenant was flawed in that it, as you see in verse 7, it couldn't actually deal with sins of ignorance. Or, sorry, it could only deal with sins of ignorance. Sorry, sins of that were purposely done, weren't dealt with. And it could never completely clear one's conscience, according to verse 9. Never clear the conscience, verse 9 says. But then, the good news is, comes Jesus with the new covenant in His own blood. Verse 12 reminds us here, that there was a superior blood sacrifice which completely atoned for sins. And, verse 14 reminds us that it completely cleared one's conscience before God. We've seen that Jesus was not one of those unwilling animal sacrifices, but when Jesus comes as the Lamb of God, He is the perfect God-man who set His will to atone for our sins. And therefore, He is described in Hebrews as a superior Savior and priest. The old priesthood was only a shadow of things to come. Christ, we see, is the substance. He is cleansing both sin and conscience. And if you understand these truths we've been looking at here in Hebrews then the logic of verse 15 and the following verses becomes clear to you. So with that little introduction, let's read today's text here in Hebrews 9, starting in verse 15. Therefore, He, that's Jesus Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Our proposition from this text today is this, that God wants you to trust in Christ's death for permanent forgiveness. 
There is permanent forgiveness, and God wants you to trust in Christ's death for that permanent forgiveness. Today's text here is broken up into two parts. First of all, let's see the result of Christ's death from verse 15. You see the result of Christ's death from verse 15, that He is the mediator of this new covenant. One of the things we learn here. But notice verse 15 starts with the word, therefore. So whenever you see that word, therefore, of course, you should be asking, what is it there for? Of course, looking back to the preceding context which has just said that Christ, because of His sacrificial death, has become the mediator of this new and better covenant. So it's been a while since we looked at that text. Let's remind ourselves by reading it again. Hebrews 9, look at verse 11. Hebrews 9, verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, verse 15 starts, because of that truth, Christ gives His life in the sacrificial death to become the mediator of this new and better covenant. So the first result of Christ's death we see in verse 15 is that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Mediator is a dangerous word for many of us, and the reason is because we uh, we might think we know what the word means. <laughs> and that's always dangerous when you think you know what something means and you don't fully understand it. I'll put a picture on the screen here. You might get the idea of, of what a mediator does based on something like that. And we, we assume a mediator is someone who, who gets two opposing sides together and then tries to achieve a compromise or an agreement between them. Uh, for example, we hear this all the time when there's a conflict in the Middle East. Often mediators are brought in. What are, they, what are mediators trying to do? They're trying to find some common ground between those parties. They can find some common ground. Maybe they can come together. Maybe there can be some peace. But we need to understand that's that's a dangerous way of thinking about this because there is no common ground between a holy God and sinful humanity. You'll see in this next slide, Christ... What does Christ do? He bridges, if you will. See, Christ doesn't find a compromise between the two parties here, between God's holiness and sinful humanity. That, Because God's holiness cannot be compromised. In fact, 
as you read your Bible, you find Jesus Christ actually agrees with God the Father that you and I deserve His wrath. In fact, Christ agrees with the Father about the ugliness of our sin. Christ agrees with the Father about the necessity of a sacrifice. And that's bad news. But the good news, my friend, is that the mediator, Jesus Christ, agrees to be the sacrifice. That's the good news. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. That Christ the mediator is my sacrifice. So the first result of Christ's death is Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Number two. We see in verse 15 that believers receive the eternal inheritance. Praise God, it is eternal. And you and I have an inheritance for all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. This internal inheritance, um, that you know, the, the internal inheritance, the Old Testament saints, by the way, they could not receive without Christ's death. What was it? It was salvation. The total forgiveness that alone could bring total access to God. We, we've been seeing this in chapters 8 and, and 9 over and over again. They wanted access to God, but they couldn't get it. There was this division between them and God in the Old Covenant. In fact, remember, only the, the high priest was only allowed into the Holy of Holies one day out of the year, showing they didn't have total access to God. But praise God, under the new covenant, there is now a access to God through Christ, our great high priest. And so the inheritance here is this present, present and future benefits that come from Christ's self, self, salvific work. In other words, his, his work he's accomplished through salvation. That's what Christ has done for us. And so we have a great eternal inheritance. But the third result we see here is that believers are redeemed from their transgressions. The greatest problem we have is our sin, if you will. God's even dealt with that. Praise God. Because we need deliverance from the guilt and the condemnation which the law pronounces against all lawbreakers. Of course, that's all of us. Romans says we're all guilty now because we've all broken the law. And so if you look at this, it's interesting because this helps to answer this question. How were the Old Testament saints saved? People often wonder how an Old Testament believer like a Moses or a Daniel or a David, for example, were saved since salvation, the Bible says, is only clearly through Jesus Christ. Well, this is a helpful passage, I think. They were saved on the basis, same basis, by the way, as believers today are saved. The difference is we look back to the cross of Christ. The believers in the Old Testament time period looked forward to the cross of Christ. They were looking to the finished work of Jesus Christ. As they read their Bibles, places like Isaiah chapter 53 and many others, they would know there was a coming Messiah who would deal with their transgressions. So part of Christ's work as mediator of this new covenant was the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. 
That old covenant is what it's referring to, the Mosaic covenant God gave Israel at Mount Sinai. One of the first accomplishments of Christ's death here was to redeem, to, to buy them back. Who is he redeeming? All those who had believed in God under that old covenant. Yes. How did people like Moses and Abraham and so forth get to heaven? How do they get to heaven? How are they saved? How is their sins forgiven? Well, Christ redeemed them, just like he redeems believers today. We look back to the cross of Christ. They looked forward to the cross of Christ. It was faith alone, as Hebrews 11 shows us. That's how we're saved. Well, there's a lot of talk about Christ's death, which brings up a question which it seems the Hebrews had. Did Christ really need to die? Remember, the New Testament talked about for the Jews, the cross of Christ was a, a stumbling block uh, to, to Gentiles. It was in Corinthians, it says that the, the death and, and the cross of Christ was, was foolishness to them. So did Christ really need to die? I mean, why all this talk of a dying Messiah? Well, did he really need to die? Well, this passage shows us, yes, he did. He did need to die. So let's take a look at the necessity of Christ's death here, coming from verses 16 through 22. We see, uh, first of all, that a will demands death. A will demands death. You look at verses 16 and 7, it some of your Bibles might use the word covenant there. I, I like what the ESV says. It uses the word will. Because sometimes we think of covenants, that could be a little confusing. That uh, You can use a covenant while someone is alive. But someone's last will and testament comes into effect when you die. That's the point here. We have Christ's death, and the will comes into effect on Christ's death. And so the writer's point is that the new covenant may here be viewed as a last will and testament, particularly in that its benefits are dispersed only in the event of the death of the one who made it. Notice again, verse 17, that a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Your new KJV uses the word testator. It's using that, that term there. That's the one referring to the the one who made the will while he was alive. Hopefully you know how a will works so you can understand this passage. See, someone will live out their, the years of their life, hopefully will accumulate some wealth through the years of their life. And some of it might be in the form of money. Some might be in the form of stocks and bonds. Some, some of a person's wealth might come in Various other ways. Maybe it might be property or it might be possessions. But the purpose of the will is to make an arrangement for the distribution of that wealth after the person's death. And it only comes into effect at the person's death. Now, if you look on the internet, you'll find all sorts of inter interesting information. I found some very strange wills by some famous people. You may have heard of some of these people. And so these wills came into effect after their death. Just bear with me. I'll just read a few here. 
For example, we, we all know that uh, Napoleon Bonaparte was a strange man, but he wanted his head shaved and his hair divided amongst his friends after he died. Ben Franklin left his daughter 408 diamonds, but stated that she could never turn the diamonds into jewelry. And William Shakespeare left his wife his second best bed. Isn't that nice? There's all kinds of strange wills. People leaving their so-called wealth for, uh, for friends, family, so forth, after they die. What's the point of verses 16 and 17 pointing out to here that a will demands death? Well, it was by dying that Jesus made all the riches that are found in him available to you and to me, to us as believers. By the way, specifically, it's these blessings of his covenant obedience. He kept the covenant, brought in this new and better covenant. And therefore, when we're joined with Christ in faith, we're made heirs of this great inheritance we just read about in verse 15. You are made heirs of a great inheritance. Meditate on that truth. It's a glorious truth. But the second reason why Christ needed to die according to this text is that forgiveness demands blood. Forgiveness demands blood. Probably verse 22 is the clearest of these verses where it says that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why why blood? Why? Forgiveness demands blood. Because blood is a symbol of death. Under the Old Covenant, the animal's blood was shed so that the animal would die. It was a is to be a dead sacrifice. You ask, well, why is death necessary? Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so therefore, we deserve death as a penalty for our sin. Uh, however, the good news is Christ died in my place so that I don't have to die. And so my friends, God does not forgive sin by by looking at you and saying, oh, my friend, it's, it's, it's all right. Since I love you so much, I'm just going to overlook your sin. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no. My friend, God's righteousness and holiness will not allow him to overlook sin. In fact, he can't do that. Sin demands payment by death. And the only death great enough to pay for your sins is the death of Jesus Christ. So God's great love for us will not lead him to just somehow brush sin away, overlook sin, but in fact it led him to provide the payment for your sin. God can't ignore our sin, but he will forgive our sin if we then trust in the death of his son for that forgiveness. That's how it works, my friends. It's always been that way. And to prove that point, the author of Hebrews gives us two examples in the Old Testament of how blood was used in the Old Covenant. Notice, first of all, that 
the Mosaic law was initiated with blood. That's what we see in verses 18 through 20. So that Mosaic law, I'm, t- I'm talking to the, the law that God gave to Moses when Moses was on Mount Sinai. After Israel had left Egypt, they were on their way to the promised land, they stopped at Mount Sinai, God gave his law. We, we, we see verse 18 here, it says, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So the reader here, or the writer, sorry, wants his readers to understand that that old covenant was initiated with the spilling of sacrificial blood that was that, that prefigured Christ's blood in initiating this new covenant. God must think this is important because in those verses here, he uses the word blood six times. Six times in verses 18 through 22. Now, what's he talking about? Well, you got to go, I'm not going to read the whole chapter here. We don't have time to read Exodus 24, but Exodus 24 gives the full account. You can go back and read it. I'll, I'll read for you a couple verses. But that's where this full account comes of this event. You say, well, what's the context in Exodus? Well, first of all, the Ten Commandments had already been given at this point in Exodus 20. And the book of the covenant was read to the people of Israel. And the Bible says the people responded with one voice. They said, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses wrote down everything God had said. And I want you to see what happens next in Exodus 24. I put it on the screen here. Verse 5, it says, He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in a basin. And half of the blood... He threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. We will be obedient. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Well, the context goes on. You can read about that later. But in Exodus and Hebrews, we understand that everything of significance was soaked with blood. As we just read, half went on the altar. Half of the blood went on the people and the scroll. So you have the altar, people, and you have the book dripping with blood. It was gory. It may have been smelly. It may have been disgusting. <laughs> it wasn't a pretty sight, except in the symbolism of it. Yes, in the symbolism, it was a beautiful thing before God, but physically not. So we see uh, that the Mosaic covenant was inaugurated with blood. The second example, showing that forgiveness was, was coming through the blood, was, uh, we see that the tabernacle was also initiated with blood. Remember, the tabernacle was that place of worship for Israel in the, in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. Verse 21 says, In the same way, same way as that Mosaic first covenant, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. 
So on inauguration day of the temple, this gorgeous tabernacle, you can read about it in Exodus. Here it is. It, it, it's tapestries, it's furniture, the beautiful white clothing of of the priest are also dripping in blood. Now what can we learn from these events? From this use of blood in the in the inauguration of two of the greatest events of, of Israel's history here under the Old Covenant, we're given this principle of verse 22. What's the principle of verse 22? That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And by the way, that's, that's based on what Leviticus 17, verse 11 says. Look at this. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. For I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So notice, it's not just the blood that makes the atonement, but the death. The death coming from the loss of the blood. You say, well, what's the point here? The point is that sin demands death. Why is there so much blood in the Old Covenant? Two reasons. First, it's emphasizing the seriousness of our sin. Sin is serious. It's costly. The Bible takes sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. Why? Because sin is what alienates you and I from God. Remember Genesis chapter 3? Why are Adam and Eve running and hiding when they were used to perfect communion and fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden? Why are they now running and hiding from Him? They're hiding over in the bushes. Why? It's because of sin. The problem is sin is rooted in the hearts of humanity. And it can't be fixed by just some self-help program. That's not how it works. Sin leads to death, and it will not be denied. And so the second reason is the costliness of forgiveness. Death is the payment. That's how you receive forgiveness of sin. So, my friends, it's, it's either going to be Christ's life in your place or your life. But there must be death. I don't know about you, but I much prefer Christ's life. I'll choose Christ's life instead of my own. And so we've seen these two events in Israel's history showing the blood being shed blood showing showing us that forgiveness comes from death let me just make three observations from this passage that demand our attention here number one salvation is the gift of god we see that truth in the in the new testament but let's be clear we, we have not received our blessings from god by earning them you can't earn them they're freely given. We have received salvation as a gift. Any of you ever bought a gift? No, because you can't buy gifts. If you buy it, it's no longer a gift, is it? The good news is we have this inheritance, and inheritance, just like a gift, is freely given. It just needs the person to die so that the will can then, the last will and testament can be distributed. An inheritance isn't earned. 
A gift is not earned, it's free. And it comes from a loving benefactor. And our loving benefactor is God. And so indeed, this is what saving faith is about. Just simply receiving God's gift in Christ. It's in Christ. He's paid for it. We just have to receive it. Second observation make from the text is that the gift we receive is fellowship with God. Don't overlook this, my my friends. We have a lot of great things that we can look forward to about going to heaven. Uh, you can talk about all sorts of things, you know, streets of gold and eating from trees that have all kinds of different fruit every month. You know, it's changing all the time. And, and uh, you know, an amazing room that Jesus Christ has built for you. You could go on and on about all these things of heaven that are that are so cool, and we can look forward to them. But as Christ heirs, we, we've received all that he received from the Father. But the greatest gift of all is, is always God himself. Revelation proves that. See, our God is not an over-busy Father who just sends down gifts and... and uh, tries to buy off his children by, by giving them gifts all the time. You, you ever met those kind of fathers? They, they seem to have this guilty conscience because they don't spend enough time with their children, so I'll just keep giving them gifts and buy their love. We don't have that kind of a God. We don't have that kind of a heavenly Father. Oh, no, his, his greatest gift is actually himself. If you look at Hebrews 8, verse 10, Hebrews 8, verse 10 says, this is God speaking, He says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. So my friends, if you trust in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. You will escape the penalty of your sins, and you will enter into heaven, and you're going to receive some wonderful privileges that you don't deserve, riches untold, but all of that is, is really little compared to gaining God himself. See, your greatest treasure should be Jesus Christ himself. You you can hopefully agree with the psalmist in Psalm 73 when he says that God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, you're going to know fellowship with the infinite, the holy, the transcendent God who is a consuming fire. Your life will have meaning Your life will have purpose and joy and peace. And for all of these things, they are found in the worship of and and the knowledge and the fellowship with this God. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 and 11 here, which says this, my friends, I will be their God and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Wow. This is what the Hebrews have wanted. They've wanted total access to God, which they couldn't have. But in Christ, we can have it. Finally, a third observation is this, that the proper response to God's gift is gratitude. Gratitude. Surely this inheritance, purchased with the freely offered death of Jesus Christ, God's only Son and His spotless Lamb, should cause you and me to be thankful. Surely. 
we ought to rise up against the enemies that put Christ to death. And I don't mean the Romans. I don't mean the Jews. What put Christ to death is your sin. Rise up against it. Mortify it. Kill it. And by the way, you have to keep killing it. Because when you read Romans, when it talks about killing your sin, it's an ongoing thing, a continuous process. Keep killing sin. As John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You've got to keep doing that the rest of your life. The proper response to God's gift is gratitude. And part of that is you're going to rise up against the enemies that put Christ to death. And so if you have an inheritance from Jesus Christ, then you need to act like a prince and a princess. They act different. They have this relationship. They know who they are. They have a a standing in their culture and their society different from most people. And so you have to act like a princess and princess. If you have an inheritance, then you're going to worship Christ who secured all of these blessings You worship the God who is their author with all that you have and even, maybe, with your very life. As Hebrews 11 points out, some did give their very life. One of my favorite hymn writers, some have considered the father of modern hymnody, is Isaac Watts. We'll sing this hymn in a moment. But the great hymn writer Isaac Watts Put it this way in his wonderful hymn. He says, Love so amazing, so divine, Demands my soul, my life, my own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We're thankful for forgiveness of sin in Christ, because of Christ, which we could have never done on our own. So we're thankful for this truth. We're thankful that Christ became the mediator of this new and better covenant. We're thankful that He did come, that He did live the perfect life which we could never have lived. He kept the covenant. He was obedient. And He was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And He went to the cross, paid the penalty for our sin. But He didn't stay dead. We're thankful He arose again. He conquered death, conquered sin, conquered the works of Satan. He did what we could never have done on our own. We're thankful for that. May we be grateful. May we believe in this gift that has been freely given. May we receive it. May we love it. May we look forward to the day when the ultimate inheritance will be given to us and we will have the curse of sin removed and we can live in perfect fellowship and communion with you for all eternity total acceptance, total forgiveness, total access. We're thankful for that. 
which all these dear people under the old covenant never had. May we be blessed as we've thought about your precious words from the book of Hebrews today. May they affect us. May they sink deep within our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.